Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. Using five ingredients to create big flavors. And obviously the Mediterranean is such a famous diet, all connected by the sea. Chef Jamie Oliver's new cookbook offers simple recipes from a delicious part of the world. It's Friday, January 26th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, Mexico is taking American gun manufacturers to court. Also, recipes for some Mediterranean delights from Jamie Oliver, coming up in about 20 minutes. But first, we've got to talk some politics. Former President Trump said he wants to win the Republican nomination the old-fashioned way, after the Republican National Committee dropped a resolution that would have declared him the presumptive nominee. And his rival Nikki Haley says her campaign is, quote, going to keep going as long as we keep growing. Even without political office, though, Trump's already exerting his power over Republicans in Congress. There are reports that that immigration deal in the Senate is crumbling after Trump lobbied some conservatives to help him blow up the compromise and deprive Biden of a potential win. It's time for the Friday Politics Roundtable. This week, Scott Tong and Jane Clayson spoke with NPR's Ron Elving and Eugene Daniels of Politico. So let's start with this deal on immigration because voters say this is a top issue. Trump came out publicly this week against a deal that a bipartisan group of senators has been working on for months. Republicans and Democrats were willing seemingly to make some tough choices that they didn't like to try to uh, tackle the huge number of people that are crossing the southern border. Ron, start us out here. Remind us what some of those tough choices were. The Democrats have been willing to talk about lowering um, uh, some of the numbers that they have expected to be able to stick to in the past, raising the, the, the requirements for amnesty, which has allowed the Biden administration to handle refugees from countries all over the world that would normally be sending us refugees from Afghanistan and other parts of the world. And that has been under their control, and they were willing to give some of that up. They were willing also to talk, well, to give up pressing, I should say, for the dreamers, for the people who had brought, been brought here by their parents when they were still children, very, very small children in many cases. And there has been a push to get them citizenship back to the Obama administration trying to get that done. The Democrats were willing to back off on a lot of their priorities in order to get some kind of a deal and get this aid to Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, but, of course, there's the, the politics of all this, Eugene. Uh, Wednesday, after Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary, the Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell said privately that Republicans now face a quandary on immigration, given Trump, as he put it, did not want a compromise with the White House. And that prompted this angry reaction from Republican Senator Mitt Romney. The fact that he would communicate 
to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. So, Eugene, what does this mean for the for the Republicans who have negotiated a lot of what they want into this immigration bill that's now in jeopardy? Yeah, I mean, what you hear from it, Romney, he's reflecting the feelings of a lot of Republican senators and also a lot of Republicans in the House, right? A lot of the people that uh, have to deal with Donald Trump or with his base often will tell us things behind closed doors or talk to each other behind closed doors in a completely different way than they do when they go on Fox News. So that's one. So you're but hearing a lot of anger privately? Is that what you're they're saying? Ups- They've always been, right? It's this issue or any other, been upset about Donald Trump um, kind of sticking his nose into their affairs, especially when he's not president. When they're, when he's president, absolutely, you know, they know that they have to deal with him. But him, you know, popping in every once in a while, especially when, as you said, it's been months and months of conversations between both sides, a deal that is probably going to be as, as, as good as it gets when it comes to what Republicans want, right? One of the things that's really interesting um, is there are a lot of Republicans in, in, in leadership in the Senate who are saying, you know, we're not going to get a better deal under Donald Trump when it comes to, um, you know, dealing with immigration. He had four years and we didn't get any kind of bipartisan deal on immigration. Democrats won't have a lot of... Um, of incentive, political incentive to jump onto what would be a very hard right bill. You know, H.R. 2, which is the Republican um, bill that is quite hard right. That's something Donald Trump would try to pass, but they're not going to get Democratic votes for something like that in the Senate, especially. Well, Ron, the deal may make it through the Senate, but it's likely dead on arrival in the House, which gives Senate Republicans even less incentive to back it. So are we left with no deal, no action? At the moment, yes, but that is not necessarily irretrievable. There are ways that the bill could be tweaked so that it looked different and could be delivered to Mike Johnson looking different enough for him to allow it to come to the floor. And if it came to the floor, and judging by what we just heard, there has some kind of chance of putting together the bipartisan vote it would need to pass in the House, there is still that glimmer of hope. But it's, but it's, a, it's a window that is closing. Yeah. Uh, Eugene, just quickly before we leave this immigration issue, what does it mean politically for President Biden if there is no deal? He is the commander in chief. This bill has billions of dollars in military aid to Ukraine and to Israel. Yeah, I mean, politically, the the administration is going to do what they often do when something like this is killed in in either the Senate or the House by Republicans, but to say they, you know, it is their job to do this. We have done everything that we can to make these things happen. They are not interested in doing it. They are playing political games. I mean, and in this way, they have a lot more evidence to that, right? It is very easy for the Biden administration and, frankly, the Biden campaign to go around and say the only reason they didn't want to do this bill because Donald Trump didn't want to give a quote-unquote win to Joe Biden. And that is, you know, moving for uh, for few people for a few people who want to see in this country an actual compromise happening in, on Capitol Hill on immigration and a host of other issues. All right. Uh, let's move on to the drama at the Republican National Committee this week. Uh, first, the RNC drafted a resolution declaring that Donald Trump uh, would be the Republican nominee. And then they pulled it. Ron Elving, tell us what happened here. This is unprecedented as far as I know, that when the prospect of a contest between 
two Republicans in good standing, at least one of them's in good standing, that is to say, mm-hmm. Nikki Haley's in good standing. Uh, Donald Trump might not be, in everybody's view, a Republican in good standing at the moment, but he has a grip on the Republican National Committee, very similar to the grip he has on many of the members of the House and Senate. They don't feel they can go back to their constituents, and I'm including here the members of the Republican National Committee. They don't think they can go back to the people they have to answer to and say they did anything, literally anything, that Donald Trump doesn't like. That is the degree of thrall that they are in to this man. So they want to be able to, in some way or another, isolate Nikki Haley and say she's not a legitimate candidate for president, even though she is still running. She has her own home state primary coming up. She has the Super Tuesday events coming up. And here you have the RNC saying simply it's over. That's what was being proposed. Well, let's talk a little more about Nikki Haley and her financial picture. Uh, she has financial backers. Donald Trump threatened to punish her donors from the MAGA camp. Today on Fox News, host Dana Perino asked Haley about all this. I don't listen to donors, Dana. I never have. I listen to the American people, and I know that we have a country to save. Well, I guess you have to say donors don't matter. Uh, but, Eugene, it's political oxygen, of course. And there's talk of a big Wall Street billionaire fundraiser for Haley. Tickets starting at something like uh, three grand or more, $300. What is her financial picture? Yeah, it's pretty good. You know, what's really funny is politicians always say they don't listen to donors. They absolutely 100% do, right? Every single politician is in some way, shape, or form, especially those running on the federal level, listening to donors. They may not do what they say, but they Mm -hmm. are listening to them. And often they do kind of do what they say because there's no other way for you to run a campaign if you are depending on big dollar donors. And as a, someone running for president, she is. You know, currently she she made more than $2 million um, after kind of um, this week. And mm. um, some of most of that coming after President Trump said that he was going to go after anyone who was on the Haley train. So that's good news for her, right? The more money you have, the the easier it is to pay people, the easier it is to fly around the country, um, or the easier it is to pay for hotels in South Carolina, um, the easier it is to do all of the things she needs to do to run in this primary. But at some point, um, these donors, and it may happen in the month between now and the South Carolina primary, are going to be looking at the polls to see if it is getting tighter between her and, and Donald Trump in South Carolina. If not... She's going to have to listen to them because they're going to stop. They're going to stop giving her money, um, and and say that you know it is a waste for me to do this, and I need to go over to the Trump camp. It is very possible that the polls may change, and she tightens. Um, right now, she's dozens and dozens of points behind Donald Trump in her home state, which would be really embarrassing. And so these folks are going to be watching whether or not those polls tighten in order to whether or not to keep giving her more money and keep her picture as rosy as it yeah. is right now. Well, President Biden was very active on the campaign trail. This week as well, uh, he rallied supporters for abortion rights. He won the endorsement of the United Auto Workers, and he spoke about infrastructure investments, such as a new bridge in Superior, uh, Wisconsin, which, of course, is a battleground state. For decades, people talked about replacing this bridge, but it never got done until today. And of course, there were signs this week that the economy is slowly improving. Ron, a lot of messages from the president this week. What is Biden making this election about? What should he be making it about? He's trying to make it about the reality of how the country has emerged from the COVID pandemic and slowly and with inflation, but steadily 
improved the economic picture for most Americans. And inflation has come dramatically down thanks to the Federal Reserve Board cranking up rates. That was painful, but it didn't cause a recession, at least not yet. If that's the reality through the rest of this year, he can point to an economy that has come out of a very serious pandemic and done remarkably well with high employment, low unemployment, and inflation coming back under control after a bad spate. There's no question about any of that. And he's trying to pull the campaign back to those realities and away from the representations, what we'll call them, from Donald Trump. Okay, Eugene, couple, uh, a couple quick seconds. What's mo- most important for the president going forward? Is convincing his base and the people that put him in office in 2020 to stick around and trying to make sure that the third party threat that's out there doesn't detriment, um, doesn't just completely decimate that because that's something that they are definitely watching quite a bit. That's Politico's Eugene Daniels and NPR's Ron Elving. Really interesting discussion. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Coming up next, immigration is, of course, a major issue in American diplomacy with Mexico, but it's not everything. After the break, Jane has the story of a lawsuit by the Mexican government aimed at U.S. gun manufacturers for their alleged role in gang violence south of the border. Stick around. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Mexico's lawsuit against U.S. gunmakers has been cleared to move forward. Mexico sued several gunmakers, including Smith & Wesson, Barrett Firearms, and Glock, for $10 billion back in 2021, claiming that gun violence by drug cartels using military-style weapons has devastated the country since the U.S. ban on assault-style weapons expired in 2004. Let's bring in Julian Aguilar. He's a breaking news reporter and producer for the Texas Newsroom. Hi, Julian. How are you doing today? Well, glad you're with us. Help us understand what's at the heart of the Mexican government's case against American gunmakers. Sure. So, I mean, the Mexican government has been saying for decades that the guns that are manufactured and sold in the United States flow down to Mexico to contribute to the carnage in that country. So the Mexican government sued in August 2021 for $10 billion, as you said, uh, to these gun manufacturers saying that they are complicit in the carnage that's happening in that country because they knowingly market and produce these firearms that are going to end up in the wrong hands and end up in that country. A federal judge dismissed this case 
2022 saying that the law known as the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act protects gun makers from, you know, somebody buying a gun and misusing it by their own accord. The federal appeals court said, you know, actually Mexico makes a good claim that these gun makers aren't insulated by this law because they're knowingly contributing to this unlawful practice in Mexico. So um, it was revived. That decision, it's expected to be on appeal, but for now Mexico is cheering this good news. Mm. Well, gun violence, of course, is a major problem in Mexico, despite the country's strict gun laws. What does the data tell us exactly about how American-made guns are getting into Mexico? So according to the to the filing, you know, the government of Mexico, the foreign secretary and, and those folks that are involved in this lawsuit, they allege that between 70 percent and 90 percent of the weapons that are recovered at crime scenes in Mexico can be traced back to the United States. Um, the lawsuit also says that gun manufacturers produce about 60, between 60 to 70 percent of the guns that are trafficked into Mexico. And that range goes from the low end of 342,000 to more than half a million, almost 600,000 guns per year. Um, you know, gun makers and proponents of the Second Amendment in the United States, they say, you know, Mexico is only submitting the guns for tracing that they know will be traced back to the United States to make the United States look complicit. But either way, I mean, even the GAO reports that have come out under the Trump administration and Obama administrations, um, and even back to the George Bush administration, you know, their own reporting says that most of the weapons that are traced um, and found at crime scenes in Mexico can be traced back to the United States, whether mm. they're purchased legally and then trafficked or whether they're purchased through straw buyers illegally and then, and then funneled down to Mexico. Tell us more about how the gun industry is responding to this ruling. Yeah, it's not surprising. You know, they're saying, you know, Mexico should pretty much clean up its own backyard instead of trying to blame the United States um, is what they're saying. You know, Mexico is rife with corruption and you can't trust what these government statistics are saying. And it's not just the gun industry. I mean, there's also several Republican lawmakers, uh, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, filed an amicus brief defending the gun industry and saying, you know, Mexico is trying to mess with the with the United States' sovereignty with this lawsuit. Um, but again, you know, Mexico was happy saying, now we're going to be able to talk to the gun manufacturers and ask them specifically what they know about their arms going down to Mexico illegally. Of course, the gun control advocates are, are cheering this ruling. What are the broader implications for the industry at this point? Sure. Well, I mean, aside from from possibly being on the hook for $10 billion, you know, the Mexican government is hoping to bring more attention to this. Uh, I mean, obviously, gun laws in the United States are what they are currently. They're likely not going to change um, anytime soon, but they're hoping to draw more attention to exactly this carnage. I mean, I'm, I'm based in El Paso, and just yesterday, the Mexican government sent in Mexican military to Ciudad Juarez, which is just a few miles away, because... They're looking at 90 homicides in January alone in that state. So the carnage does continue. And, you know, proponents of this lawsuit and for gun controllers saying this would help the United States as well. You know, Mm -hmm. the United States is battling a migrant surge and a fentanyl surge. And these cartels are using these weapons to further their industry. So if you take away some of these weapons, maybe that'll weaken the cartel's ability to to commit these crimes. Mm. So now that the U.S. Appeals Court has spoken and um, Mexico's lawsuit against U.S. gun makers has been cleared to move forward, I mean, What's next? What's going to happen now? Uh, oh, you know, a likely appeal of this appeal at court ruling by the gun manufacturers to see if, you know, if it, it will indeed stand. But um, if not, you know, I guess you'll start seeing depositions and seeing this case move forward, albeit slowly the way all major cases go. But uh, for now, like we said, the Mexican government is looking forward to pursuing this. Mm. Julian Aguilar is a breaking news reporter and producer for the Texas Newsroom talking about this important case with us today. Julian, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. 
Coming up, the Mediterranean diet. It's supposed to help you live longer and better. It's been celebrated and refined for thousands of years. And above all, it's delicious. But chef Jamie Oliver says, don't be intimidated. You can cook like you live in the med with just a few simple ingredients. Jane finds out how when we return. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Project Lead the Way. Today's world is driven by STEM. At Project Lead the Way, they believe learning by doing helps every student in every grade be STEM successful. Learn more at pltw.org slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Cooking does not need to be complicated, and Jamie Oliver's new cookbook proves it. It's called Five Ingredients Mediterranean Simple Incredible Food. He shows us how to create easy, super flavorful meals. And Jamie Oliver, chef, restaurateur, cooking show host, he's got it all, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. So nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So this is your second cookbook with the five ingredients theme. The idea is that you want cooking to be less stress, less money, minimal ingredients, but still have those big flavors. Big time, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a funny old thing, cookbooks. My job as an author is to listen to the public. And uh, about five years ago, I did five ingredients. It went gangbusters, but normally I wouldn't repeat a format like that. Um, My wife bullied me to do another one. She just said, (laughs) look, this is where we're at. This is what people want. This is what the mums talk about, you know, when we're kind of comparing notes. It's like, okay. So um, I did what I should do, which is listen to her. And um, I thought we'd go to the Mediterranean. And Ah. I think... People don't like long shopping lists. Yeah. Um, they want it to be easy. Yeah, just five ingredients for each recipe. Yeah. Short, sweet, to the point, no muss, no fuss, because people are cooking differently than they did a generation ago, even yeah. just a few years ago, weren't they? Yeah, big time. Technology in life is changing our lifestyles. And, of course, the food industry wants to fix everything for you. And what happens when that happens is people forget how to cook. And we know that when people forget how to cook, they're not so well. And, you know, without being miserable, they normally don't live as long. So, you know, for me, cooking isn't just about joy and the gorgeousness of serving people that you love, but also it's 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 kind of 
political and it's about our kids mm. and it's about our futures. So yeah. I, I kind of cross all those boundaries, really. Well, I want to talk more about that later. Let's get to the food first. Mm. Uh, with each recipe in this book, you presume that we've got five basic ingredients in the pantry, right? Olive oil for cooking, mm -hmm. extra virgin olive oil for dressings and finishing dishes, red wine vinegar to balance the marinades and the sauces, and of course, sea salt and pepper. Those are the staples, right? They're the staples, yeah. All right. And then we go from there. So let's go to some of your recipes. I made a few, actually more than I expected because they were so fast and oh, really blessed. easy and very good. Um, Thank you. The first one was the Greek chicken pasta. Tell us about that one. Ah, I didn't plan to do a pasta chapter, but the, the recipes were so good I had to. Most of the recipes in this book, uh, the pasta recipes, sorry, are not Italian. Mm. They're uh, from Turkey, from Cyprus, from Tunisia. And that was really fascinating to me. So this, this one that you're referring to is so good. And it's using chicken thighs, which is really affordable. Any kind of pasta, but we're kind of using a macaroni-like pasta beautiful tomatoes we're using halloumi and you can get these little freezer bags in the freezer department of like sofrito which is basically chopped onion carrot and celery so there's a few things going on here of you know you're slow cooking the chicken you're getting the flavor out of the bone and this sweet tomato sauce and the halloumi and pasta so tell us about the halloumi because that's a cheese that i hadn't actually heard of before. yeah well halloumi you can get it in all the supermarkets in the u.s it's typically a greek cheese known for being sort of grilled or fried and it can be sort of soft but a little bit chewy sometimes in a nice way yeah. but this time we grate it like parmesan and it's mm. tangy and it's such a delicious seasoning and, and that was a revelation for me mm. you write that your teenagers loved it which is why i made it because mine loved it too so that's yeah. good. <laughs> the sweet pea Orchietti. Orchietti, yes. Yeah. It's so nice in the cookbook to see the picture with the recipe, and this one's an eye popper. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, look, five ingredients again. I mean, also what I'm trying to do, even though obviously I'm a chef, it, it's really important that we embrace things like the frozen peas. Yes. They're really everyday. They're really available. Pasta of any shape and size. And then we're using potato as well. And a lot of people think that you can't do carb on carb, ironically. But actually, some of the, some of the best things in life are carb on carb. Um, so just little diced up potatoes with little sweet peas, scallions, and pecorino or parmesan cheese or whatever cheese you have available. And you get this silky, silky uh, pasta where the peas just fall into the little cups. It really is comfort food and, and my family love it. Speaking of potatoes, you've got one in here I just turned to, potato bombas. I mean, you have turned the humble potato into a thing of wonder. My goodness, that <laughs> one was really good. Potatoes, eggs, manchego cheese, breadcrumbs, and a jar of arabatia sauce? Ar Arabiata, yes. Arabiata. It's a chili tomato sauce. Mm -hmm. But again, these are simple ingredients that you can get hold of easily. And, yeah. and, and, you know, the idea of using five ingredients to create big flavors, and obviously the Mediterranean is such a famous diet all connected by the sea the love of olive oil and herbs and citrus and uh, and all those different religions and cultures that celebrate food so i wanted to get a little scattering of that across the book and you know people think can i really do it can i really have a delicious meal with five ingredients you did it yeah. with main courses yeah. with fish dishes um and you did it with desserts which in this book mm -hmm. are impressive and so easy i made for our team here the tahini rocky road yeah. which is dangerous because you really could eat so the good. entire tray yeah <laughs> and, look, and, and yeah. hopefully you agree i mean like 
having the tahini, which is made from sesame seeds, you can go sweet or savory, but used in Rocky Road with the nuts, the fruit, the chocolate, the little crumbly biscuits. It's so... and, a, and a little bit of fruit jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that was actually that was a little nod to America. It was that kind of whole like peanut <laughs> oh, butter you. and jello. Thank you. I wanted that tang and sweetness from the jam. Well, I wish we could get to all the desserts: the pistachio panna cotta, the peach granita, the smashing semifrito. I mean. They were really, really good. So bravo on that. Besides food, Jamie Oliver, your passion is fighting childhood obesity, and you've been leading the charge against marketing junk food to kids. I know your cookbooks are part of that. You started a campaign originally called Feed Me Better to get kids in the U.K. to eat healthier, right? What's your message to parents and to kids? Oh, well, I mean, look, I think generally speaking, and as a parent of five kids myself, like I-, I wish that kids would learn about food and where it comes from and how it affects their body at school. You know, I just think that the education needs to embrace that life skills like cooking are essential, not a luxury. If you look, I mean, after your mortgage for your house, you know, the money you spend on food and nourishing your family is up there with the biggest expenses of your whole life. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I like to look at it like 10 recipes to save your life, 10 principles that can bend. And when you teach 16-year-olds, you know, kids, those 10 recipes to save your life, no matter what happens in their life, you know there will always be deliciousness. Whether they've got a little or a lot of money in their wallet, they can respond and nourish themselves and their families. Well, and you've talked a lot about the link between poverty and obesity and how it's important to make fresh food more available to everyone. You can literally have the tale of two cities, like just a mile away. You can have the the same age kids, literally with different prognosis of life expectancy, productivity, absenteeism from work and school, you know, exams. I mean, I've become obsessed with how uh, child health tracks into adulthood and food is absolutely part of that. Well, Five Ingredients Mediterranean is your 27th cookbook. I remember interviewing you for that first book, The Naked <laughs> Chef. That was 25 <laughs> years ago, right? Yeah. Time flies. It does. You've released about one a year, sometimes two a year, and a few TV shows along the way. Where did the ideas come from, Jamie Oliver? I've never struggled, funny enough. Each book has a different story to tell. Sometimes it's like a voyage of discovery and something from the heart, and sometimes it's trying to solve a problem. Um, so whether it's one pound wonders or, you know, money saving meals or five ingredients or 30 minute meals or 15 minute meals because 30 minutes wasn't short enough. <laughs> um, I try and create recipes that suit that. And I focus really closely on what people are buying in supermarkets. And then actually I try and write recipes for things that they've already got in their basket. So I try and just get them to do different things with the things that they're buying anyway. So that's that's the theory. And so far, so good. Like mm. I haven't been fired yet. It's <laughs> <laughs> not. I was interested to learn that you are dyslexic. Mm. How did you overcome dyslexia to, to write all these books? Uh, <laughs> try and avoid writing. <laughs> um, I think like you know, part any of that neurodiversity is about kind of finding solutions to getting around the problem. Yeah. And I've never put pen to paper for a book. So my first three books that I wrote was on dictaphone and then when they kind of worked and sold I could afford to employ a, an editor to type what I said um, so there's always a way 
Design is really important as a dyslexic. That's why you'll see in my books lots of step-by-steps. Certainly in this book, like I didn't want to yap and give you loads of philosophy and kind of like thoughts. I just wanted to have short amount of words telling you the maximum amount. The reason I was fighting for that white space is because I didn't want people to open a page and feel scared. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and weirdly, words do scare me. The words were my enemy, really, when I left school. Uh, and weirdly, here we are 27 books later where... I finally realised that, you know, words are such a powerful thing and I've just had to try and find them differently. All right, take us out with your favourite five-ingredient recipe from the book. Oh, goodness. So I think one of my favourites is um, lemon tzatziki chicken with fluffy uh, pan-juice rice, like jammy onions, roasted lemons. And we use the tzatziki, you know, with the mint, the lemon, the garlic, the seasoning, the cucumber as a marinade, and that tenderizes the chicken. We roast it up in a pan until it's like gnarly and crispy and gorgeous. And then in those sticky bits of goodness in the pan, we put rice in and onions. And I take a little bit of the onion and do a quick little pickle in salt and vinegar. And then that, the combo is just outrageous. Well, bon appetit. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Thank you. Super chef Jamie Oliver, chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. His latest is Five Ingredients Mediterranean, Simple, Incredible Food. Jamie Oliver, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Lemon tzatziki chicken is just one of the recipes you'll find from that book. If you go to our site, hereandnow.org, well, bon appetit, or kali orixi which is Greek. And yeah, I had to look that up. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Sam Rafelson, and Julia Corcoran. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Mikaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org.